All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. Um, this is going to look a little different, obviously, as we, uh, uh, before we uh, preach here in just a few minutes. In part two of our series, I'm joined on stage by a couple of our elders. Uh, this is uh, David Brewer, Daniel Broyles. You know these guys. And um, they're joining up here on stage for a couple reasons. One is we are a church that leads in plurality. That's kind of a fancy word that means more than one. Uh, we lead as a team of elders. And secondly, we're kicking off a new series if you were here last week, you know that through the summer months, we're going to go through something called Church Defined. We're going to take the whole summer and spend time on really boring down into, as a church, uh, what defines us, what shapes us, what does it really mean to be a local church, what does it mean to be a member of a local church. And these guys are going to help me kind of talk through that at the beginning, and then we'll open up God's Word in just a few minutes. But uh, let me set the stage this way before you guys chime in, ask some questions, but uh, this is really intended to be a dialogue around the idea of over the next few weeks, we're, we're building on this big truth. So go ahead and put that big truth up on the screen that we've been kind of wrestling with. Um, the next one, is there another big truth? Let me just read it to you. It's this. We say this. We are defined uh, as a church. And I can just stop right there and say we're going to talk through this. You may fill in that blank a lot of ways. Most people do. We understand that. So we're going to take some weeks and say we're defined as a church by really the, pra- the principles that ground us, these biblical principles, practices that guide us, and then we have these membership promises that really define what it means to be a member of a local church, what that looks like down on the ground of real life in a local church. We want to talk about that. It's been a big deal. We've been praying through this, getting ready for this as elders. I wanted you guys to speak to this a little bit. Uh, what is the significance of this for our church family? And I I shared last week, if you were here, some of my hopes and prayers as a part of this series, what we wanted to see as a result of it. Why don't you guys speak a little bit as an elder, a lot of emphasis on this series over the next few weeks. What do we hope happens? What are you praying for? What do we want to see happen in our church? So I'll just personalize it first for me. I mean, it's, there's always an opportunity to get a fresh look at what, how the Bible describes the church, what it is, what it isn't. Because um, we drift, we, we really do. We, our, our understanding of church is impacted so much by the culture in which we live that um, even though we may have heard some of these truths before, it's always good to get grounded. So I just want to see for myself, for others, um, to, to see the church the way Christ does and to love the church the way he loves it. Um, and then beyond that, Mike, I would just say, you know, understanding's one thing, but then to see us, my vision is, I mean, when we start functioning as a church according to how Christ intends it to function, and we get an opportunity for God to work through our unity to magnify Christ in a way that would go beyond what we could ever imagine. Yeah, that's I mean, that, that would be kind of the, the application of that and seeing that play out would be a vision. Yeah, let me respond to it real quick. Don't you think, and I, maybe I said this last week, I repeat myself sometimes, but we live in the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to own that. And there's probably not a single person in this room that doesn't come in with some understanding or maybe expectation or what they think mm-hmm. the church ought to be or what grandma's church was or maybe what the church they want it to be. Maybe this will help center us back to what okay here's what god says he wants his church to be i I would hope that would come out i agree yeah okay so daniel you take this a little bit mate you want something to add to that uh no i the only thing i would say is i think plurality we need to understand as a church isn't just something for our leaders it involves us as well and 
we need each other. God has supernaturally gifted each of you with a gift specifically for the edification of the body, the building up of us. And so you have a responsibility within your gift to the one another's that assemble here with you. And at the same t- in the same way, you need them. And so when we hold up plurality, it's not just um, something we just share. It's a pursuit of one another, not just because it's a good thing or we like to have some community or feel like we have friends. We need one another. And God has set it up that way. And we are better together than we are apart. And so I, I think that's the only thing I would add. I'm praying that we would have uh, a greater awareness for plurality and the need for one another uh, that would lead us to sacrifice more for one another, challenge one another, encourage one another more, yeah. and just bring us closer together. Yeah, maybe own a reality for a second, though, just like we're here in the South, but we're in a culture, you speak to this, that constantly speaks the other direction of independence. I mean, that's what we hear constantly. It's an end of, but the church is the exact opposite of that. We are deeply dependent upon one another. It's a good thing. We're united with one another, but that's not the message we hear from the world continually. It's much more of an individualistic, but that's not the gospel. That's not the picture of the church. So hopefully we could get at that. Um, take a little bit, Daniel. You've been, as much as anybody, really leading through this for our church as one of our elders, teaching pastors. When we say principles, practices, promises, uh, I like that they all begin with the same letter. That's really helpful. Thanks for that. Help us understand how all that builds together. What does that mean? Not just in churchy language, but where does it really, where do we hope that takes us? How do we grow as a church around those? Help us understand how all those fit together. Sure. Um, one of the things that, I have a seven-year-old, I'm around kids, and one of the things that kids can do that, uh, for lack of better terms, is just annoying. <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't act like you don't get annoyed times. You do. Aren't you glad it, you're not our kids' pastor? But yeah, anyway, no, I, I know. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean that when they ask so many questions, especially like why, 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 and you, you try to answer and then they just ask why again. Uh, we probably should be more like our kids, honestly. Uh, we, we get irritated with that for, I think, one of three reasons. One, we just don't want to engage uh, with them, we, we, don't, we don't want to take the time to kind of walk through it. Or two, we feel like we already know the answer and there's no point in going any further. Or three, which is worse, we, we don't know the answer, but we've deemed it not important or unobtainable. In the church, we first probably feel experience. So when we hold up membership promises, they're getting to the being the doers of the word. Like, yeah. it's, it's how we actually pursue the action and activity that God has called the church to do. It, it's just, it's handles for that. And it, that gets, um, that's also true in a little bit when we go to uh, our practices. Like, we gather to worship, but we gather at a certain time, on a certain day, we sing a certain song. In other words, there's strategy that begins to happen in those things. One of the things that I think is a, um, a stumbling block for the church is when we stop asking why and we stop connecting the dots back from those uh, practices and actions, those promises and commitments we make to one another, all the way back to the doctrines that mandate them. And so those handles, those uh, principles, 
practices, promises. There's ways for us to get a grip that the thing we're doing isn't just random. It's not just man-made. It's connected back to something much bigger than ourselves. And so those principles, they're biblical absolutes. They're, they're mandates given by God. They're worldview-level things. God's glory. We exist for Him. We're not changing that. Biblical authority. It, we stand on God's revealed word, and it is more important than anything. Mike talked about that last week. And Again, if you just ask a simple question, do you believe the Bible, and you say yes, you're not off the hook for biblical authority. It's a pursuit more than it is a doctrine. For example, in East Tennessee, we're brought up to say our tribe comes first. If, you know, think about it, you know, the redneck scenario, Bubba gets in a fight, his brother comes out of the bathroom, his brother doesn't say, Bubba, what are you doing? His brother just jumps in and defends his brother because that's what we do, Right? That idea, no, right? It's a great example. I love that example. Um, no offense the, to Bubba. Yeah, no anyway. offense to Bubba. The, the question for you isn't do you believe the Bible, it's do you believe the Bible more than your family, more than your friends, more than your tribe? See, that's a pursuit. That's much harder. Our principles are the doctrines that guard and set our worldview. And they lead us into practices, strategies, and vision that we collectively work together as a church. And it shapes how we promise and commit to one another to fulfill those things individually in our lives as members of a local church. And so those terms, yeah, they're just terms, but they're handles for us to see from our activity all the way back to the things that matter most, the revelation of who God is and who he's called us to be that's good that's helpful thank you so come from that then one of the hopes coming out of this series is and and I think we could own this that the view of church membership is becomes very low in other words we don't hold it up according to what scripture says so it's just kind of a take it or leave it it it, however you want it's just a low view of that so we would hope coming out of this series that we want to raise that view um biblically so help us understand a little bit David what what's the big deal about church membership and then what would we hope would even come out of this series as far as that yeah so I'll I'll describe it this way and it it's different than how I would have done it in the past I think um, and it's not that this is not true but sometimes when we talk about to elevate church membership we talk about the privileges that come with a membership and that puts us in mind of you know being a member of Sam's Club or something (laughs) Uh, which is not not what we're talking about at all. And so we got to be careful how we use those terms. When I look at Scripture and I see Paul writing to the church, the local body at Corinth, he talked about them as members of one body. And so he used the term members, but he meant it a little differently than we do. He meant like medically, like, like when we say someone's involved in an accident and they've lost a finger or toe, they've been dismembered. <laughs> There's, a, there's actually a medical term with member. It's, it's being a part of a unified body. And so he was looking at that church of Corinth, and he was saying, listen, guys, I, I don't want you to be a bunch of dismembered body parts. Mm-hmm. There's something much more powerful than that. You are members of a body. Mm-hmm. And so in the New Testament, what you will find is you will find local church settings where people are committed and accountable, and they belong. Now, we call that membership. You could call it something else. You could call it partnership, 
teammates, mm-hmm. whatever. It doesn't, it's just do people identify with um, and are accountable to a group of people mm-hmm. locally and then hold out the promises that we'll talk about in a second. Mike, I, don't, I was thinking earlier, what do you say sometimes that uh, the New Testament knows nothing of a unbaptized believer? Unbaptized believer, yeah. Uh, I, I think we could say it this way. I don't think the New Testament knows anything of someone who's in the body of Christ that's not part of a local body. Right. I, don't, I think they're inseparable. Yeah. And so um, the analogy I used in the earlier service, and I'll, I'll use Daniel since he's on my left here and I like to pick on him. But if, if you can imagine a conversation taking place in our community where somebody asks Daniel, hey, where do you go to church? And he says, Tri-Cities Baptist. And then they say, well, who's your pastor? And he knows to answer the plurality of leadership, but he doesn't want to explain all that at that point in time. So he just, he picks a name and he says, well, it's Pastor Mike Lauren. And then they say, well, are you a member there? And he gives what could be one of four or five reasons. No, I'm not, and it's not time yet, and I don't think I want to make that commitment, and uh, I'm not sure I agree. You know, the truth is, biblically, his answer to question number two was incorrect. He, he has no pastor. He has no overseer. He has no shepherd. He cannot say, this is my pastor, but these are not my people. Yeah. They go together. Yeah. And, a, and really a commitment to membership or a committed accountable, accountable belonging is more about your commitment to those that are part of the church than it is even the leaders. It's both, but it's both and. It's not one without the other. And so when I think of it in that sense, I think, my goodness, why would anybody want to, as a believer, walk in this life and not have, not be even even able to answer the question, who are my pastors, in an honest way? Because they haven't made a commitment to the body that those group of men pastor. So um, I would just say, and, and then a fair question is, well, what do you want us to commit to? Well, that's the membership promises. And the best we have, have uh, been able to discern from a careful study of Scripture, we've tried to pull out promises that, are, that have biblical authority to them. It's not just things we dream up that would be nice for people to yeah. own up to and commit. But it's biblical authority. So that's how the membership promises connect back to membership in a very basic way. Yeah. So springboard from that then, we would hope there would be some corporate response over the next 10 weeks, some course corrections, some repentance, some celebration, all that. But Daniel, what would we see as some of these personal responses, really of everyone, over the next 8, 10 weeks to this series? Uh, sure. I, I th- there are three I'm praying for. I think one, you're here uh, this is your church, you're a member of Tri-Cities, I, I pray that God would give you a renewed um, passion to practically pursue the membership promises, um, to really pursue being a faithful member of the body. Yeah. And I think the membership promises give us a great starting point to that. And so I, I just, whether that's in your home, in your family, in your life group, that that as we get to the end of this, there is a renewed uh, sense of reaffirmation to those promises and a new energy to your pursuit to be that for one another. I think second would be you're here 
and you're not a member of Tri-Cities Baptist Church or another church, and you walk through uh, the next few months with us, and you sit on the other side of that, and you say, these are my people. God has put me here, gifted me here. I need to be part of a body, and this is my church. And in that moment, you would. You would affirm the membership promises, and you would claim the brothers and sisters in this room as your local, uh, uh, your local body. And then third, I think there's going to be some who get to the end and they're just still unsure. They have questions. And they're not maybe quite comfortable with uh, uh, committing and affirming to one another, uh, to promising to one another those markers in Scripture. They're not maybe comfortable with the idea of membership, whatever that may mean for them individually. And my prayer for for them is that they would be willing at that time to have a one-on-one conversation with one of our elders or pastors. That they wouldn't just say, that's not for me, but they would understand that that's something our church holds up. We think it's biblical, it's important, it's valuable for their life. And rather than just kind of ignoring it, they would be bold enough to say, you know, I I need to talk about that. And they would meet with one of our elders, our pastors, and that we would be able to just talk through that individually with them in their particular circumstances. So I think those three responses are what I would hold up. Okay, awesome, helpful. Guys, thank you. Uh, we're going to open up the Word together, so David, won't you just pray for us, pray for this time, then we'll open up the Word together. Lord, thank you for this, uh, this day and this time together. We thank you for this local body of believers we call Tri-Cities Baptist Church. Lord, uh, I, we uh, love the body known as Tri-Cities Baptist, and help us to love her more. Help us to love her as Christ has loved the church. Help us to be um, committed and accountable belonging to one another and vice versa so that you can display your power through the unity of your believers. Uh, Thank you for this uh, summer and this series and for Pastor Mike, Daniel, Paul and others that are bringing weekly messages to us to reinforce your truths and the application of it as it relates to the church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Church, would you just let your elders know how much you appreciate them They make their way off. All right, so go ahead and grab a Bible. There's one in front of you or uh, your Bible and open up to Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be over the next few minutes. And if you were here last week, you remember I said, uh, think of this this 10 weeks as really just one message. And we're going to cut it off in bite-sized segments each week. So we'll just kind of pick up where we left off. And if you were here last week, you remember we have four of these what we call principles, these core, biblical, deeply embedded truths that ground us. We looked at a couple of them last week. Uh, we started last week and we said, the first one is this, God's glory. You remember we said, we exist for Him. That is one of those deeply embedded realities that we're grounded upon as a church. The drift is toward self, but Scripture and um, From Genesis to Revelation holds out a very different picture that we exist for the glory of God. Secondly, we looked at biblical authority last week. Uh, And we said this, that the Bible is the ultimate source of truth. Uh, If it doesn't square with Scripture, it's simply not true. The Bible is the authority. It's inspired from the mouth of God. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. We hold out that the Bible is truth. Now this week we're going to look at two more, just two. Wrap up our four principles. The third one is going to be this, is gospel sufficiency. And the statement we're going to use is simply this, is that Jesus is enough. Gospel sufficiency. 
that Jesus Christ, we believe it, we declare it, we're built upon it. It's one of those girders just driven down to the ground. Everything necessary for us to know God, walk with God, be right with God, be transformed, carried into eternity was paid and bought for and sealed and completed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for what? And how do we have the authority to say that? I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, just a couple verses. Then we're going to look at some other verses. But this one's not going to be on the screen, so you can just listen as I read. The Apostle Paul's writing to a group of believers, church there, and he's describing what they were before Christ and then the realities of the transformation that takes place in Christ. He says this, And you were dead in your sins. You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Paul says, before Christ, you weren't just sick. <laughs> you weren't just in need of a, a, you know, a makeover. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. That's all of us, by the way. And then he comes in verse 4 and he says, but God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. That's shouting ground. We were dead. He made us alive. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Christ. So that's the basis, that's the idea, that's a summary of the gospel that basically is here's who Jesus Christ is, here's who what Jesus Christ has accomplished, therefore everything is done for us to be made right with God. Now it's not a politically correct statement, it's not a statement that's going to trend on Twitter and everyone just jump around and say, oh, I agree with that. In fact, you'll get consistent pushback to say this, Jesus Christ is enough. He is the only Savior, and He is the sufficient Savior. How in the world could you make such a bold claim as that? Let me give you three reasons, and these are your three handles under this. Number one, I'm going to give you three big ideas. The first one is this. Jesus is the God-man. In other words, if Jesus isn't who He says He is, then the gospel message is empty. If Jesus hasn't fully accomplished what he says he accomplished, then the gospel message is empty. So in the beginning, Jesus is the God-man. Otherwise, we have no gospel. We have no redemption. Jesus is not enough. He's not a glorified rabbi or teacher. Jesus is the God-man. Where do you get that from? You could go to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, speaking of Jesus. You get a Hebrews 1, you get a Colossians 1 throughout Scripture. I want us to look in Philippians 2 for just a second. It's a couple verses, beginning in verse 5. The Apostle Paul there is writing to that group of believers, and he's giving them uh, uh, some instruction of how they're to relate to one another, how they're to serve one another, how they're to walk in humility to one another. And he says, your model is Jesus, verse 5 of Philippians 2. He says, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, he's going to describe Christ, he says, who, although he existed in the form of God, stop right there, 
Paul says, here's something that is true of Jesus. It's always been true of Jesus. He has always existed. And Paul says, in the form of God. What does that mean? The word form means the essence of a person's nature. The essential, unchanging character of something. Infinite worth, infinite capacity, all of who he is. Paul is saying, listen, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, Jesus has existed as God. Forever. He didn't become God. He didn't go to school to learn to be God. He's always been God. So he's been forever. But then Paul continues and he says, there was something that was not the reality about who Jesus was that became the reality. He says that. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of his deity, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, second person Jesus became a man. He took on flesh. He became in our likeness. Paul says he, he being made in the likeness of men. Now why is that important? That's important because Jesus Christ, if he is not all God and all man at the same time, cannot be your Redeemer and cannot be your Savior. If he is, he can declare that he's the only Redeemer. If he's not, then the gospel is empty because, what's this? Only an infinite being has the capacity to take on the sins of all the world. A human being can't die for another human being. Only an infinite being has the capacity to take on the full wrath of God. And Jesus had to die in the flesh as a man to die for the sins of men. He had to be the God-man if the gospel is true at all. Now what's this? Secondly, not only is Jesus Christ the God-man, the second big idea is this. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is righteous. Okay, Pastor Mike, what does that mean? I hear that word, I've grown up with that word. Well, the word righteous, it, it means this, that Jesus became like us, he became a man, but in his righteousness, he was nothing like us. <laughs> righteous literally means the idea of complete moral character of God himself. It means someone who always acts in accordance with what is right and is in himself the final standard of what is right. Okay, help me with that. I don't get that. God is is righteous it it isn't that God opens the book and says okay I gotta figure out what to do so I know what to do right what is right whatever God does is right because he is righteous the very essence of his being is this rightness and righteousness and perfection and the Bible says that Jesus as the God man is the only person who has ever walked the earth and is completely righteous in and of himself now watch, I'm going somewhere with all this. 1 John 2, 1, John's writing, he says, my little children, writing to believers, he said, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. And if you sin, we have an advocate, a go-between, a stand-in for us with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So if we're going to be made right with God, there's a reality that we have to embrace that in and of ourselves we have zero righteousness. How do you know that? Romans 3 says this, it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. we got a problem. God is perfectly righteous and we have no righteousness in and of ourselves because of sin. 
what are we going to do? Well, maybe I can earn my way. We know that's not true. Because God's righteousness is not an earned righteousness. It is infinitely righteous. We can never earn our way. Well, maybe I can try hard and do good things. And, yeah, no, no. There's no way, nothing you can do to bridge the gap of him being righteous and us not being righteous. What's this? You have to be granted the righteousness of another. That's the gospel. You see, if Jesus Christ isn't who he says he is, if he's not God, if he's not all man, if he's not perfectly righteous, the gospel message is completely empty and has no power. But scripture teaches us that Jesus is absolutely righteous. Therefore, number three is true. The big idea number three is this. Jesus alone is redeemer. He's the only one. Not because God the Father looked down and said, you know what? Got all these ways to God and all these different ways a person can be made right. You got Buddhism and Confucianism and Joseph Smith, Mormonism and all these other isms and asms and spasms. And I, I, like, I like Jesus best. That's the one. No, no, no. It didn't work that way. It's that in all of history for eternity past and present there is only one who is a righteous redeemer god man who came in the flesh who bore our sins went to the went to the grave and rose again as the god man as the righteous one therefore watch this you and i can say with the authority of scripture jesus christ is enough he's enough you can't add to what he's done. You can't take away from what he's done. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. The God-man. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the great exchange. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, the righteous one, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you know how we're made right with God? The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us on the basis of faith. Everything necessary for us to be reconciled with God is fully accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's why the gospel message has power. And we say the sufficiency of the gospel message, everything is necessary. Everything is done to the point, last breath of Jesus on the cross, he's dying. It is what? It's done. But it's deeply rooted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So for us, a pillar in the ground, boom, boom, is this gospel sufficiency. Hallelujah, Jesus is enough. Now I want you to hang with me for a second before I go to this next one because I want to chase something with you from this. It's extremely practical. You're probably here and many of you in this room, you would say, yeah, I'm a believer. I, I've trusted Jesus. I know Jesus. I know the gospel. I know the message of who Jesus is and what he's done. I'm past that. I've moved on past the gospel and I'm ready to go on past that. But listen, here's what I want you to hear this morning that is going to be liberating to some of you. The message of the gospel is not just for the lost person out there. The message of the gospel, who is Jesus and what he has fully accomplished, is something we are to be daily, regularly reminded of and we live out of and from what Jesus has fully accomplished. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean by that. 
If we don't understand that, here's what happens to us. We come to know Christ and we say, yes, we're believers by faith, but then the rest of our Christian life is living out of this works mentality or this moralism or this legalism. Listen, I come to know Christ by faith in his finished work. I live the Christian life rooted in who Jesus is and what he's finished and what he's accomplished. Give me an example. Okay, help me understand this. All right, I'm going to give you a silly example, and then I'm going to give you a biblical example. The biblical is much better, but I'll just give you a silly one. A few years ago, my parents, before they, before they passed on, went to be with Jesus, one of the things they gave my family was they bought my entire family, all seven of us, Dollywood season passes. Yahoo! Right? It's awesome. And at a point in time, they granted us this gift. They said, here's your Dollywood season passes. It's done. They've given us this gift. But from that, for the rest of the year, we lived out the implication of what had been given to us. Living the Christian life, the teaching even in the Gospels is this, or, or the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, the implications of what it means for you in every area of life of who Jesus is and what Jesus has fully accomplished. Biblical example, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, Paul writing to believers He spent three chapters explaining who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished, the message of the gospel. And then to believers, he says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Bear with one another. Forgive one another. If any of you have had a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Say, help me connect the dots there, Pastor Mike. What do you mean by that? Watch this. The reason you, as a child of God, have the capacity to forgive in a radical way that you didn't have the capacity before Christ is this. Because of the reality of the radical nature that you have received forgiveness. The reason we as believers don't have to chase acceptance in the next unhealthy relationship or the next unhealthy situation. Oh, I just need to feel accepted. Oh, I just need to feel loved. Is because of the reality that in Christ, in the gospel, you are fully accepted. You are perfectly loved. You have been completely redeemed. You have been given an identity in Christ. You are part of the family of God. And that is rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And I live my life out of that reality by faith. See that? The gospel is not something that you just drive on by. The gospel is the basis of how we live our lives as believers. We love because we are loved. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We can rest in the acceptance that we've been given in Christ. We can give generously because we have been given everything in Christ. Isn't that great? That's the implications of the gospel and that every area of life we can say Jesus is enough. So let me ask you something, brothers and sisters. How does the reality of the gospel affect your marriage? How does the reality of the gospel affect your dating relationships? How does the reality of the gospel affect your spending patterns? How does it affect your life decisions? If it doesn't, you don't understand. The coin hasn't dropped for you yet. That the gospel is not just something we leave behind. It it has implications for every area of life, child of God. Jesus is enough. 
Jesus is enough. And the last big principle we want to drive in the ground, and we're going to wrap it up with this in just a minute. So we've talked about the glory of God. We've talked about the authority of Scripture. We've talked about um, the sufficiency of the gospel. And the last one I want to talk about for just a few minutes is this, kind of bring it together. It's when we think about salvation and we think about redemption and we think about the gospel and all that Jesus has accomplished, I want us to move beyond just thinking, yes, Jesus saves people to the reality that God from the beginning of time has chosen and has an eternal plan to save a people, a group of people, the church. And the last one I want us to see this morning is that we are the body of Christ That God has chosen to redeem a people, not merely individuals loosely connected, but a people for his glory. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says it this way, But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And the word you there is plural. Uh, Peter was from the south. It literally means you all. You all, collectively, not individuals. You all, collectively. You're part of something together that's much bigger than just individual parts. It's the church. You are a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that great? We are the body of Christ. Now, three handles to that that I want to give you and then we'll get really practical. We talk about the church, number one. The church is a redeemed community of Jesus followers on mission together. (laughs) Anybody heard that? Does that sound vaguely familiar to anybody? We have that as our identity statement. You hear that every week to remind us who we are and what is true of us. Because your activity will always flow out of your identity. (laughs) Who you see yourself to be will always inform your activity. So we are The redeemed people of God. Because of grace, we are followers of Christ. We have been given a mission together to accomplish. We always say that this way, we're redeemed people. We hold that out. We're not a perfect people. Amen. In fact, we're a messed up people. If you're new to Tri-Cities and you're looking around and saying, man, everybody here seems to have it all together. Uh Uh-uh. Messed up, broken group of people who have this to boast in we've been redeemed by the righteous one Jesus Christ we're redeemed people followers of Jesus on mission together secondly spend a few minutes talking about this one because we don't talk about it a lot we need to but the church is a gifted people The church and the parts of the church were a gifted people. Paul says this in Romans 12, 4. He says, for just as each one of us have one body with many members. He's going to use this body analogy. And he says, I've got one body, but I've got many parts. He says, and those members do not all have the same function. My hand can't do what my eye can do and vice versa. He says, but in Christ, though many, we form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. My hand cannot jump off my body and say, I'm going to act independently. I don't need the rest of the body. (laughs) Paul says, just like our human body, the hand is dependent on the rest of the body. And the rest of the body needs the hand. It's designed that way. It's a beautiful picture. He says, verse 6, we have different gifts. According to the grace given to each of us. 
Then he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, For, for from him, Jesus, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in, lo- up in love, as each part does its work. How does the body grow? How does the body build itself up? As each part functions. I mean, listen, if my pancreas just decided, you know what, I don't need the rest of the body, and I'm just going to kind of float around the perimeter and just kind of be a spectator, my body is sick, right? And I'll tell you something else. That pancreas can't survive. See, there's some deception out there that we all get fed constantly that, you know what, I'm fine just kind of orbiting around the perimeter without being engaged in the life of the body. I'll just tell you something. Biblically, you cannot be as healthy as you could be as a follower of Christ if you think you can just watch from the perimeter and just watch as a spectator. Engage in the life of the body because it's there you are served. And it's there you serve the other members of the body with the gift that God has entrusted to you. That's health as the body builds itself up. The church has many parts. Every part is important. Every part's not the same. But God has designed it that way. We want you to be engaged in the life of the church. You say, how does that happen? What does that look like? Well, listen, sometimes engagement that way happens in short-term ministry teams. Maybe VBS is coming up. Some of you may involve yourself in VBS, and you're using the giftings God's given you for a short period of time. That's great. Sometimes it may involve a project team that's going overseas. You say, I'm part of a mission team. And yes, I get to use my gifts that way as a part of that short-term team. But let me tell you how it most commonly happens. As you engage in the life of the body, primarily in groups and connecting together, you use your gifts naturally. And gifts of the body are used for you naturally. You need someone with mercy. You need someone with a prophetic bent. You need someone with the gift of generosity. And you give that back to the body. It most often happens as you immerse yourself in the life of the body. That's health. We want that help for you, and we want that health for this church family. So the body, redeemed community of Jesus followers. Secondly, it's a um, gifted people. And then thirdly, the time we have remaining, and I'm going to wrap it up in just a minute, but I want to I talk about this for just a few seconds because it's so important. The church is a diverse family. The church is a diverse family by the plan of God. God determined it to be that way. Now, we can get very practical and say we live in a world right now where there's a lot of conversation going on, and rightly so in many cases, about diversity and discrimination or prejudice, injustice, equality, all of that. If you understand Scripture and you understand a biblical worldview, you know some realities about us as humans. Here's some realities about us as humans. We naturally drift to those who are most like us, right? We do. We naturally drift to those we have an affinity with, and that is not in and of itself wrong. But here's what comes out of that. We naturally divide away from those who are not like us. And here's what sin does in our heart. Those that we divide from and those that we see as different from us, we subtly and naturally begin to believe in our hearts that we are superior to them. And that's sin. It's a sin. 
But in the church, the redeemed body of Christ, God intends the church. Watch this. I love this. Man, God intends the church to be the shining light and beacon on a hill that models to the world how unity, true unity, can come out of vast diversity. The church is to model that. You understand that. In the New Testament, the church, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he talks about this oneness between one of the greatest divides ever in history, between that divide between Gentile and Jew. Jew and Gentile in the early church was such a massive divide. And Paul says, listen, he says this in Ephesians 3. He says, this is God's plan. That both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news, the gospel, share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both Jew and Gentile. What are you talking about? The watching world said there's no way that thing called the church works if you're trying to pull Jews and Gentiles together. Uh -uh, It doesn't God's plan. He says both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promises of blessing because they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, Galatians chapter 3, Paul says it this way, it gets painfully practical here. He says, within the church, within the body of Christ, under the banner of Christ, unified around Christ, he says this, but there is neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, the distinctions don't go away. There were still Jews and Greeks, but the unity that was found in Christ superseded any lesser distinctions. We're one in Christ, which is greater than any division we might have of ethnicity. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, if you look at someone in Christ and the first thing you notice about them is their ethnicity or their skin color or their background or their socioeconomic background, if that's the first thing you notice, that's not the way it works in the church. The first thing you see is family, (laughs) brother, sister in Christ. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. The economic distinctions go away. He says there's neither male nor female. Now be careful, don't take this too far and misinterpret it. There are males and females. Thank God for that, right? But in the church, there can be no hint that because I'm a male, I'm somewhat superior to females. Wrong. There are distinctions within the church of roles, but there is no superiority within the church that a man is somehow over a woman or a woman is over a man. It doesn't work that way. There are roles, yes. There are distinctions, yes. But there is not superiority. There is equality at the foot of the cross. The church is to model that. Hollywood and the politicians and our world should be able to look at the church and go, oh, that's how a man treats a woman. That's how people of different skin color can connect and relate and genuinely love one another and not take something called racial bias training. Starbucks gave that attempt a few weeks ago. Good attempt, great. The gospel changes our hearts. And a heart transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ does everything in our power by the power of Christ. Watch this. To snub out in our hearts the root of racism that wants to continually come up in our hearts. 
or the root of sexism that wants to come in up in our hearts. Or watch this, even the root of nationalism that wants to come in our, up in our hearts that says, well, by golly, I'm an American. That's all that matters. I'm proud to be an American, but I'm part of the family of God first, way before my allegiance to a country. That's the way it works in the body of Christ. Beloved, because we have been redeemed, we should model what it means to have unity out of great diversity. Let's strive for that in the gospel. That's what the church is. So I'm going to ask the team to come on up. I know our time's up. These are important issues we're dealing with. We're going to move into response time and then celebrate some new members as a part of our church. It's really exciting. But I, I want to ask you just for a moment, just as a time of response there in your own seat, I, we're not finished. I'd like for you to bow your head for just a minute. I know you've heard a lot this morning. and So team comes up and begins to play. I, I just want to ask you some questions to wrestle with this morning. Just right there and you see it after what you've heard you know, from the Word of God. I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I resting? Am I completely resting as a believer in the finished work of Jesus and His righteousness or am I still trying to earn favor with God? Have I somehow drifted over into legalism of this mindless rule keeping rather than the heart of one who has been redeemed in response to the grace of our Lord? I ask you this, are, are you on the, the fringe here or have you found a place to plug in to serve and to be served as a part of this local body? Are you healthy? Are you growing in health? And finally, I just ask you this. When you look at... When you look at brothers and sisters in Christ, do you see skin color first? When you look at brothers or sisters in Christ, does it matter at all what their socioeconomic status is? It shouldn't. There may be some things in your heart that get exposed by the gospel. And here's our response. Repentance. God, forgive me. You may be here this morning and for the first time ever you realize, wait a minute, I can't earn righteousness. I've been trying hard to be good. No, no, no. It's given by faith in Jesus. Trust him this morning and him alone. So I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing, close our service in just a moment. Let's trust you. Respond there in faith to the Lord. God, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this body of believers that I love so much. Continue to shape us in Christ's likeness for your glory. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand. Let's sing. Let's respond as the Lord leads us.